We start with COVID outbreaks in BC schools. Now, we've seen three schools shut down in-person learning here recently after COVID outbreaks. Parents and teachers worried about that, especially COVID outbreaks infecting kids under the age of 12, who, of course, are unvaccinated. Have a listen to this now. There's a... a uh, Let's talk to my guest first, Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation. Terry, thank you for coming on this morning. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Terry, let's start with the number of COVID outbreaks we're seeing in schools right now. Does the union keep track of these? Like, how many schools have got COVID outbreaks right now? Do you know? Well, it's really difficult for us to keep track of it because, you know, we just don't get that information. And so what we see, uh, unfortunately, in, in a way, is that the BC COVID trackers who do their work on social media are the ones that get the information immediately, and they developed quite a network. Um, we think that information ought to come from the provincial health office and the local health authorities, and we know that it's going to start to come from there. Um, but, you know, it's not encouraging that we've already been told that it'll be information delayed. Yeah, it does seem kind of unusual that it's taken parent volunteers on social media to set up a Facebook page, and this is where people are getting most of their information and, and not from the public health office. So, But Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday, the provincial health officer, said yesterday that they will set up a new system where people can go online, you can find information about COVID in your kid's school. Let me play a clip here for you, Terry, of Dr. Henry yesterday, and then I'll get your thoughts on the other side of this. So as of today, the regional health authorities will start posting K-12 school potential exposure events on their websites. And there will be a link at the BCCDC website for all of the, the regional health authorities. This is similar to what we did last year. What we aren't going to be able to do this year and what was not effective in terms of spreading information or um, supporting um, transmission or decreasing transmission in schools was sending out a letter to all of the schools if there was an exposure event. Okay, so it sounds like they're moving away from the letter notification and going to this sort of central website system. Is that what your understanding is? It's what I understand, and I and I don't know why this is the case. Last year, they sent letters out. They need to do that this year as well. Having parents, um, you know, having to go to a website to figure out if there's been an exposure notification at their school doesn't seem quite right. I'm not sure why there is this resistance to giving people information. And, uh, you know, we're also concerned about the traffic that might be going to those local websites uh, and whether they can take that in terms of their capacity levels. So, you know, it's, uh, it shouldn't be incumbent on parents who might not have a smartphone, who might not have a computer, who might not have access to the Internet. Um, you know, unfortunately, we're not looking at this through a, through an equity lens when th these decisions are made by the provincial health office. It sounds like more work for parents to find out if there's COVID in your kid's school. I think most parents would prefer to get an email. And it should it should be readily accessible to them. Uh, districts know the families that where an email works or where, where there needs to be a paper copy. And I'm not sure why there's such a resistance to sharing this information. Well, okay. Um what would you like to see instead? Well, we would like to see that information going home directly to families, obviously. Yeah. But we'd also like to see uh, some better reporting. Just simply sending home an uh, exposure notification doesn't let anyone know the scope of the issue, whether it's one case, whether it's multiple cases. We also have an issue where different health authorities report things differently. For example, Vancouver Island Health is reporting quite a number of clusters 
and yet other health authorities are not. And and surely there are clusters in other places besides Vancouver Island Health. It appears that the different health authorities don't use the same definitions either. And so, you know, like we're 18 months into the pandemic and and we're really uh, frustrated by the lack of clarity of information about schools. And, Hmm. you know, we're seeing other jurisdictions that seem to be able to do this so much better. Okay, let's talk about masks in schools. And the provincial mandate right now is masks required in schools, except for kids from kindergarten to grade three, where masks are optional. It was really interesting to see the Vancouver School District move ahead with their own rule requiring kids in those those earliest grades to get masked up as well. So every kid masked up in school in Vancouver. And Dr. Bonnie Henry was asked about that yesterday. Will she expand that mask mandate to kids in kindergarten to grade three? Here's what she had to say. So I think it is really important to remember that we still have many layers of protection in place in our schools, and masking is one of those layers. We talked about it today, how important it is to to monitor every day, that daily symptom check, the fact that we are, um, while we don't have the same concept of cohorts as last year, and, you know, I showed the data today. We are seeing increased cases in school-aged children. That means that school-aged children, some of them will be coming to school uh, with COVID. Oh, okay, she didn't really address it there, but basically she said that she's sticking to her guns here and there's no mask mandate for the youngest kids, grades uh, kindergarten to grade three. Your thoughts? Well, it's another aspect that doesn't make any sense. There are layers of protection that were in place last year that are not in place this year. As mentioned, there aren't cohorts. There isn't the same level of cleaning this year either. And, you know, so so there were protections in place last year. We didn't think they were adequate last year, and we think they're even less adequate this year. And so when you look at uh, primary students, kindergarten to grade three, you know, th- we have hand washing in place, and we have teachers trying to teach students not to get too close to each other and to respect their personal space. That's a lot of, of, of effort and um, responsibility on the shoulders of teachers. Um, you know, in the, in the past, we've been told that students, young students don't get as ill or don't get COVID as readily. That seems to have changed with the Delta variant, at least in terms of a student's susceptibility to COVID. And I think that, you know, the resistance to wearing masks doesn't make sense. We haven't been given a reason, and, and there wasn't a reason given yesterday. Uh, and what we know is that uh, elementary schools are where most of the COVID cases occur. So last year, we had to rely on WorkSafe data to see that most of the teachers that got ill with COVID and made a claim to WorkSafe were elementary school teachers. And so, you know, we know that COVID's more rampant in elementary schools for lots of different reasons. And the resistance to wearing, you know, for young children wearing masks doesn't make sense. We know they can. We know they can be uh, properly taught to wear masks and take care of them. And we've, we see this happening in lots of different places. But without a mask mandate, we hear from families who are very frustrated because their children, you know, are yeah. the only ones perhaps wearing a mask. Okay, speaking to Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation. Terry, let me play a clip here for you from Barry Penner, uh, the former BC Attorney General. He was a guest on the show here yesterday, and he's calling for mandatory vaccinations for teachers. Have a listen. I don't think it's appropriate for adults to be spending extended periods of time in enclosed spaces if they're unvaccinated with our vulnerable children. Um, So uh, I think it's well past due that we go beyond masks and require all adults working in the school system in close proximity to children uh, to be vaccinated. 
Terry Mooring, what do you think of that? Well, we're not opposed to mandatory vaccinations. And so, you know, we would, if, if the provincial health office or government uh, decided to uh, put in place mandatory vaccinations, then we would work with them to make sure member privacy was protected, to make sure that, you know, in those rare situations where there's a medical exemption, that that would be honoured and there would be an accommodation made. And we've made our position pretty clear. And so, you know, we are, and we have multiple times uh, and continue to encourage every single member that we have um, to get vaccinated. What right. we do know are there are parts of the province where vaccination rates are really low, and it has to do with attitudes in, in many cases, and, and a lot of work needs to go into that. Okay, you're not opposed to mandatory vaccination for teachers, but you're not asking for it, though, right? Well, we're, we're, it's not, you know, we're not in the position of being able to impose mandatory vaccinations. That would have to come from the provincial health office and or government. And yeah, but you're so, not asking them to do it. You're not, you're not saying, you know, we're, you're not lobbying being Bonnie Henry to say, look, we want this. Can you please bring it in? You're just saying well, you're not opposed what to we're it. saying is, you know, look, we we would be more than willing to work with you, Dr. Henry, um, should you make that decision, which is your decision to make and government's decision to make. We have some things that we need to make sure are in place. We need to make sure that there are, you know, privacy issues in place and protected because that's legislation and that's our obligation as a union. And we would have to make sure that proper accommodations were in place. And okay. so we were willing to work with government and the provincial health office on this is- on these issues. Um, okay. And, you know, it, we are waiting to see what the decisions are. Thank you for your time this morning. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank, thank you. Terry Mooring there, president of the BC Teachers Federation. Let's talk about the rising number of kids getting COVID in BC now. New data out from the province yesterday shows a surge in school-aged children uh, catching the virus. The data shows as of mid-September, kids aged 5 to 8, also 9 to 11, leading the way for transmission of the virus in BC. Of course, kids under 12 not vaccinated they are catching lots more COVID. let's check in with jason tetro now host of the super awesome science show jason is a microbiologist and an immunologist and i'm pleased to welcome him back to the show jason thank you for coming on today hey great to be joining you okay let's talk about uh COVID and kids here let me play a short clip from dr bonnie henry yesterday here talking about cases of COVID going up in children have a listen the, the rates that we're seeing right now of COVID-19 per 100,000 population is going up quite dramatically, particularly in those young, uh, younger school-aged children who are not yet eligible for vaccination. Okay, Jason, a lot of kids getting COVID. Is, is it, can you pinpoint it right on the, the lack of vaccination of, uh, vaccine available for kids right now? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, when you actually look at some of the data that they've been putting into models, um, looking at schools, um, just the lack of vaccination accounts for about 50% of the excess cases that you would normally see in a school. So right off the bat, the lack of vaccination is a concern. Um, and of course, when you are looking at how schools are developing, one thing you also want to do is you want to have what's called a cohort. In other words, um, everybody um, in the same class stays together for the whole time. If you're having any kind of mixing, then you're actually increasing the chances for excess cases. Um, so those two things are definitely what is driving this rise. Um, but I do need to say one other thing, and that is... Yeah. The only reason that schools become incubators is because the positivity rate in the population is so high. If we the population uh, level of positivity, then we don't have to worry so much about schools. Yeah, I mean, Dr. Henry, I think, made that point yesterday as well, that a lot of the COVID they're seeing circulating in schools is like kids 
kids getting the virus at home, right, or out in the community, bringing it into yeah. the school. Yeah, and, and that's normal when you look at any kind of uh, virus. Uh, typically, um, you know, respiratory syncytial virus, which is, you know, making major waves right now in the East, um, is, norm is known to do that. So it'll basically be brought in by a child who got it somewhere else, and then that will spread like wildfire within. The difference is that we're talking about COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, um, and the potential risks that it brings to kids. Okay, nobody wants their kids to catch this virus, but if they do, uh, the chances of children getting really seriously ill is a lot lower than a, in adults, correct? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And there's a reason for that. If you were to look at the immune systems of children who are up to about 12 years of age and then people who are above 12, what you'll see is that when a person who's older gets infected, the immune system has to catch up with the virus. But with children who are under the age of 12, what we see is that the immune system is already prepared. It's, it's what we call preactivated. That's just basically because it's developing itself. So the virus comes in and immediately is met with a, tr uh, with troops that are ready to, you know, kill it and get rid of it. Whereas if you're older, it's going to take some time. Yeah. And this was, um, reflected in the data that was released by the province yesterday that even though we're seeing a lot of kids get COVID, we're not seeing a lot of kids getting seriously ill and going into hospital, yeah. but not unprecedented, right? Like it is possible for a kid to get really ill from this, right? Yeah, and you see, that's where the double-edged sword of immunity comes into play because many of the longer-term symptoms are actually as a result of that pre-activation of the immune system. Um, so what ends up happening is the immune system recognizes the virus and says, ha-ha, I have you. But if the virus, especially something like Delta, can outrun it or out-multiply it, then the immune system is just going to go racing, 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 and may actually end up helping to not only cause problems um, in the localized area, but across the whole body. And uh, that's where this uh, multi-system inflammatory complex is coming from. Right. Speaking to microbiologist Jason Tetro, Jason, if you have a kid who gets COVID, we've, we've often heard about long COVID or people who experience mm -hmm. symptoms for a long time, is it possible for a kid exposed to the virus to catch long COVID? Yeah. So we're at about 3% based on uh, information that's being published in the literature. Um, I would suggest that it may not be as high here um, because what ends up happening is that prevalence rate will be reflective of the community's um, infection so if you have so many more people who are infected, you may actually end up seeing a rise in the um, prevalence. So in the U.S., it's coming about 3%. I would say it's probably a bit lower in Canada just simply because we haven't had the level of infection in our community. When you say 3%, do you mean 3% of people who get the disease will suffer yeah. from these long-term symptoms? Okay. Yeah that, yeah, that that seems to be what we're looking at. So what it what you call it is a seropositive, someone who's shown that they've had COVID, and then they have these symptoms that are lasting longer than 28 days, if you want to go from that perspective. But at the end of the day, yeah, it, it's the, the, the virus itself is somehow finding a way to stick around, or it has changed the immune system in such a way that it's leading to um, elongated symptoms, such as tiredness, difficulty concentrating, um, and and sometimes even, uh, you know, fevers and that type of thing. But right. the most significant uh, symptoms happen to be exhaustion. Right. Okay. Lots of parents concerned about this, especially with back to school. And we're seeing lots of COVID outbreaks in schools. And let me play a mm -hmm. clip here for you, Jason, from a caller on yesterday's show. This is Matt 
who called me yesterday from Langley. He's got three kids at home, all of whom tested positive for COVID. They're all three young kids. He figures his one of his kids got COVID at school. He was not happy with the with the late notification about the exposure in his child's school. By the time he found out, all three of his kids tested positive. Have a listen, then I'll get your thoughts here on the other side of this. All three of our kids were totally asymptomatic. They had no idea. Nobody had any idea they were even carrying COVID. We had no reason to suspect or to test them at all. So you got six days of kids going, doing their other extracurricular things like hockey, doing this and that, and going into shops and all the things we normally would do. Um, they don't have to wear masks. They're under six years old, but, you know, who knows? They could have been bumping this thing around. Okay, that was Matt yesterday on yesterday's show, and that one really jumped out at, at me, Jason, with three young kids at home with COVID. They've all tested positive, but he said, I said, how are they doing? What are their symptoms like? He said, they have no symptoms. They're all, all three yeah. of them were completely asymptomatic. Yeah, and usually what happens is you end up being positive for between five to seven days. You don't even show any symptoms, and then their immune system comes in, clears it out, and away you go. The big problem right now is that we're still very, very much focused on positivity. In other words, you do a PCR test, you get a positive, and then you have to stay home. What we are going to eventually come to is not having to worry about that because there's such a large population of vaccinated individuals that it's not going to make a difference. We're not there yet. We need to get the vaccine approved for those children under the age of 12, at which point then we can start looking at it from that perspective. Until until that time, unfortunately, Matt, this is the only way that we're going to be able to sort of control the spread of this virus. And, oh, sorry. Okay. The vaccine for kids this is one that we're waiting for, right, for a vaccine to be approved for kids 12 and under. How close are we to that? Well, right now we are just seeing the initial stages of the phase three, which of course is the last stage before approval. Everything seems to be working out fine, which is great. And so I'm hoping that within the next month, we're going to get enough information into the FDA and then Health Canada has what's called a rolling review, which means they do it pretty much at the same time. And then we're going to be able to provide that emergency authorization for children under the age of 12. The big problem, of course, is that when you're dealing with children, emergency authorization may not be enough. And so the FDA may want to do a full analysis and a full approval, same here in Canada, which may take about one to two months longer. But I'm hoping, hoping, hoping that the results allow us to start vaccinating our kids by the Christmas break. Okay, how important is that, do you think, getting on top of this thing? Everybody wants this thing to be over with. Um, how important, how critical is the, the, the vaccine for younger people to do that? Yeah, okay, so when you're looking at vaccination rates, based on where we are right now, um, having a vaccination rate of about 70%, which is what is going on in schools right now, reduces the chances of spread by about 50%. If you can raise that to 85 to 90%, it reduces the chance of spread to practically zero. That's what we're wow. talking about. Wow. Okay. So it sounds crucial to just defeating oh, this yeah. thing. Yeah. And, and yeah. I mean, for anyone who's out there who's denying that or wondering about that, just remember one thing. How many times have you heard about measles outbreaks or even um, <laughs> polio outbreaks? Yeah, not that much. simple. <laughs> yeah. Back talking about COVID and kids. We're talking about the COVID vaccine. My guest is Jason Tetro. Phone lines are open to him. 604-280-9898. Call me if you have a question. 604 280 9898, star 9898 on your cell. Elaine and Delta. Hi, Elaine. Hi, I'm wondering if you are fully vaccinated and you get a mild case of COVID, if you could mm -hmm. still get long haulers. Jason. I, 
Yes, uh, theoretically, that could be the case. Um, but normally what ends up happening is if you are going to have even a mild breakthrough, it's going to last five to seven days. This has actually been shown through trials. And then it clears it, very similar to what happens in kids. That's the benefit of having fully vaccinated uh, individuals. So does the vaccine reduce the chance of t- getting long-haul symptoms? Yes, absolutely. Yes, okay, good to know. Let's uh, keep taking calls. Donna in Langley. Hi. Hello. Hi. I have a grandson, 18-year-old, who got the um, the Pfizer vaccine, and he developed um, chest pains and fast heartbeat within a few days, went mm-hmm. to emergency. They did a fairly thorough checkout and said he was okay. He's still experiencing chest pains, not as frequently, but still experiencing them, and fast heartbeat. And his family doctor says she doesn't know whether to advise him to get the second shot or not. And he's waiting for an appointment with a cardiologist, um, which is uh, six, seven weeks uh, trying to get. So Mm -hmm. what should they do? That's actually a really good question. And um, believe it or not, I've heard this several times from people both here in Canada and in other parts of the world. Um, Normally what has happened talking with these individuals is that they've had their tests and it has very little to do with the vaccine, but rather the immune response. And it seems to be going a little bit out of control and that that can be managed through other factors. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's what's going to happen in your case, but it does seem to be that the immune system, when it's boosted the way that it is with the vaccine, can lead to these issues. Um, and that will probably be needed to look at first um, before you start thinking about getting the second shot. But let me remind you, we should be waiting 8 to 12 weeks for that second shot so that we have a longer amount of um, uh, of immunity based on the studies we're seeing. So you still have time. Yeah, so you would say good idea to speak to that specialist. Oh, absolutely. You should always be talking to a specialist if you have anything that seems out of the normal. Yeah. Barbara in Cloverdale. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, My question is, I'm I'm actually flabbergasted at the number of friends I have that are anti-vax, anti-mandate these days, none of which live in BC, I, I will add, though. They're all in Alberta and Ontario, but what I'm hearing from them is, like, that... All of them seem to know multiple people that have had the vaccine that have had adverse reactions like, oh, so-and-so's cancer came back after five years. So-and-so had like all these different kind of random things. And I go like, couldn't that just be a real big coincidence? Or can the vaccine trigger that type of thing like you've just said with like an immune, uh, like an overactive immune response? Yeah. um, When it comes to these other aspects, the overactive immune response is not really going to lead to any kind of um, return of a long chronic illness that really doesn't have anything to do with the immune response. So I think in this particular case, unfortunately, it's just really a matter of, um, you know, just what sometimes they call it luck of the draw. Well, in this case, unluck of the draw. Um, But again, when we talk about things like adverse events, you have to report all adverse events anyways. And then what happens is an investigation is done to find out whether or not the vaccine uh, was part of it. And what we're seeing is in less than 0.1% of the times, the actual outcome that we saw has anything to do with the vaccine. That's all I can really offer at this point. Well, yeah, I mean, 
if you just start breaking down the numbers, I mean, people will call, they've heard stories, they've read stuff online. Oh, the vaccine can do this or, you know, someone saying they can bring back cancer. What? Like, are you, you know, this, this crazy stuff starts to circulate. But then you just start doing the basic math on this stuff. Like in Canada, I believe it's around 55, 56 million doses of the vaccine. Mm-hmm. You know, around the world, more than six billion doses of the vaccine have been has been given out, and you're talking like the number of people who've had an adverse reaction is is like minuscule out of a sample size in the billions. Oh yeah, so, no, and, and and that's the thing, right? Math will always provide you with the answers that you need. Um, what has happened, though, is that when people start looking at very small levels of the mathematics within a much larger umbrella context, they can then come up with conclusions that just essentially are not true. But then what they do is they try and um, you know spread out those conclusions in the hopes of being able to say that this particular um, um, method or, or, or motive is, is wrong. Yeah. Vaccination has been proven to be an excellent method to be able to protect people. And, you know, I, I honestly don't understand why they want to be doing this type of cherry picking to somehow, you know, antagonize against it. I, I guess it's just the, the nature of the misinformation that can spread so easily online. Now, we just got a minute left here, Jason. But, you know, when mm-hmm. we talk about that kind of misinformation that's out there and people who don't want to take the vaccine because of something they've read on Facebook or whatever, like, how would you characterize that as, a, as would you say it's like, like one of the biggest threats to sort of getting be over this thing. We just got 30 seconds here. Yeah, I've got two people uh, in mind when I'm thinking about this. I've got the one person who really is just concerned because they've been hearing all of this misinformation. Um, I've had numerous discussions with these individuals. They have gotten, they have gotten vaccinated. That's basically yeah. what we're doing. We're helping them out. Then you have the other person who essentially is, I am not doing this because blank and they will not move. And unfortunately, we need to keep them lower than 10% in order for us to be able to use the vaccine to get rid of COVID. Jason, thanks for coming on today. Appreciate it. Hey, hey, it was no problem. Take care. Let's talk about that guy who turned his Vancouver penthouse into an illegal nightclub in defiance of public health orders. You remember that guy? Mohammed Movasagi. This is the guy who started that nightclub up in his penthouse there. Uh, even when the bars were shut down. Uh, he said, to hell with that. He was having a nightclub in his penthouse. He had a hundred, a lot of people up in his uh, penthouse. He's got a two-bedroom suite and a 45-story high-rise in Vancouver, valued at over $2.8 million. And, yeah, he ran a nightclub in there. He was fined $5,000. He was placed on 18 months probation. He even went to jail for one day after he was arrested for violating BC's COVID-19 restrictions with the parties he was having in his suite. Even after he got caught, he continued to uh, have more uh, parties in his, his club and charging people to come in, and basically running a, an illegal nightclub in, in his suite, and he got into a lot of trouble. Well, now look what's going on. A civil action has been filed in BC Supreme Court. The government was trying to seize, seize his condo now. The director of civil forfeiture in BC has filed the claim last week against Movasagi. Uh, the notice of claim says that uh, he had been engaged in unlawful activities and they are looking to seize the condo. $2.8 million is the value. 
Uh, there's some. There is a mortgage on the property, uh, about two million bucks. They're trying to get from this guy for the, for the sale of his condo. Let's discuss now with my guest Noah Mendelson Aviv from the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. She's the Equality Program Director there. I'm pleased to welcome her. Hi, Noah. Hi, Mike. Thank, thank you very much for coming uh, for coming on today. What do you think about this case? I mean, this is a guy who got in a lot of trouble. He became notorious in Vancouver for running this illegal nightclub. And now you've got the civil forfeiture office trying to go after him and take his penthouse away. What do you think of that? Well, it sounds to me like a double punishment, right? I mean, the, they've gone after him using various kinds of penal measures, uh, jail time and fines and the things that you're talking about. But the Civil Forfeiture Act says that you can then, you know, even with or without a conviction, uh, you can go after somebody to try and take away their property. So, you know, it makes sense if somebody has an illegal weapon for police to be able to take that. But it's hard to understand how this law um, would would be designed to go after somebody's home, which is, you know, and that and that's not to support or or speak to what was happening in his home. That's a totally separate issue. The concern that I want to talk about is why is there a law allowing police without a conviction right. to go after somebody's house? You know, and if and if somebody has been convicted and has, has had a judge look at the particular situation and decide what is a proportionate sentence, what is an appropriate sentence, what is the result that should occur, how can they go after him again? And how could they impose on something on him something so enormous. Right. This is uh, the controversy that centers around the civil forfeiture system in our province and other jurisdictions as well. And mm-hmm. the the court case that has been filed, it alleges that Mohamed Movasagi did not have sufficient lawful income to buy this penthouse. This is a $2.8 million property. They, say, they allege he did not have any lawful income to buy that penthouse, to make the down payment, or to pay the mortgage. So I guess, what are they suggesting? That I guess if he didn't have the lawful income, it must be a legal income that he used. So therefore, they're right in seizing it. Is that the bottom line on it? Well, you know, I, I, don't, know the, I don't know the specifics of the case, and it's, and it's not super relevant. You know, are, do they need to make this argument in order to justify taking away somebody's house? I mean, most of us don't have sufficient income to buy our houses and we take out a mortgage and then whatever we do by way of work, we use to pay off the mortgage. And if this guy, you know, if, if the if the argument they're trying to construct, and I, and I don't know if this is correct, but the argument they're trying to construct is, you know, he used proceeds from these illegal nightclubs or from these illegal parties or from these illegal gatherings, whatever they were, to, to pay back some, pay down some of the mortgage, again, like, he went to court. He was charged with having those parties. He got handed down a sentence. He said, so it's hard to understand how, they, how you can then turn around and say, but because, because some of that money was used to pay down the mortgage, they can take away the man's home. Yeah. Right? And again, I'm not speaking about the gatherings. Right. right? We're all right. living under the pandemic. That's a separate issue. But the question of how the Civil Forfeiture Act works is really problematic. We have a criminal justice system. It is supposed to have all sorts of protections in place for people who commit offenses, including defense, including due process. You're supposed to be convicted of a crime. 
And then and only then the judge determines what is the appropriate sentence, looking at proportionality, looking at your circumstances, looking at this is the first time. All, all of this has been constructed over hundreds of years, really, to try and create fairness and rehabilitation and proportionality within the criminal justice system. And suddenly you've got the Civil Forfeiture Act swooping up and saying, oh, and on top of that, we're taking away your house. Right. But of course, this is in civil case, right? This is in a, in a civil courtroom. This is not in a criminal court. This is a civil court. And are the standards of proof lower there? Like, what do you think that the chances of success are in a, in a case like this? Like, if if this is happening in a, in a civil courtroom where the standards of evidence are a bit lower, then does that increase the chance that the government might be able to take the guy's condo? Um. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to speculate about what the outcome could be, but sure, I mean, that's one of the ways in which this is different than a criminal case. It's one of the pieces that is not in place to protect somebody who's been accused of doing something, you know, uh, standard of evidence, burden of proof is all different. And in addition to that, we have a constitutional principle that says people don't get punished twice for the same crime, right? if If you get... If you get a sentence or a fine or whatever it is for fishing without a license or for whatever, they can't then turn around and then say, oh, you know, we decided that fine wasn't enough or we just really don't like you. So we're going to hand you another fine. We're going to keep taking you back to court. Right. So now you've got a criminal system, but you've got the Civil Forfeiture Act. What it's doing effectively is not that different. It's punishing somebody, at least the way they're using it here in particular, it's punishing somebody again for the exact same thing that they've already gone after him for, or that they can go after him for using the criminal system. Right. The case, the so documents... It's civil, it's still the government. It's the government going after him in two different ways, and the government shouldn't be able to do that to people. Right. The case that's been filed by the Civil Forfeiture Office in this case, it claims that Mohammed Movasagi's brother had previously been investigated by law enforcement for, for drug trafficking, and it then goes on to claim that Movisagi had purchased this condo, this penthouse, as a means to launder proceeds of the unlawful activity. So I guess they're trying to link this to, you know, some other criminal activity involving other people. What do you think of that? Does that make it a stronger case, or do you still think that it's it's not fair for the government to go in and you know seize someone's home without meeting that? that test of evidence that you talked about earlier. Yeah, I think that if a person is accused of laundering money, we have a criminal justice system right? Yeah. with all sorts of ways of prosecuting somebody and investigating and determining in a fair and careful process and giving them the right to reasonable defense all the way through to proportionality and sentencing. We have a, we have a system that allows us to go after people who are laundering money. But now the Civil Forfeiture Act says, oh, but we've got another parallel track. Government can go after you twice for the same thing. And by the way, we don't have to have a conviction. We can just make a declaration. Your, your brother might have done something. Your cousin might have done something. So we're going to go after you not through the criminal justice system with all of its careful procedural protections right. for a person who is accused because we want to make sure that if somebody is accused of a crime, they have a right to a full and fair defense. They have a right to a trial. But this is, this, is a, this is a totally different system, but it's the same 
but it's still government going after an individual. Okay. And we have a Charter of Rights and Freedoms to protect people. Okay, this is a case we're going to follow closely and see how it turns out. Noah, thank you for coming on today to talk about it. Yeah, it was great to talk to you, Mike. Thank you. We continue talking about the Mohammed Movasagi case. This is the Vancouver man who held that illegal nightclub in his Vancouver penthouse last spring in defiance of public health orders. He was fined for that. Even when he spent a day in jail, uh, went on probation, he did it a few times. Uh, faced a $5,000 fine. The Office of Civil Forfeiture now uh, trying to seize his nearly $3 million condo. You heard my conversation there with Noah Mendelson-Aviv, Canadian Civil Liberties Association. She thinks this is going too far. Let's check in with Kyla Lee, Vancouver lawyer with Acumen Law. Hi, Kyla. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here again. What do you think of this case? I mean, it's very hard to feel bad uh, for Mr. Movasagi because of how openly he was defying the laws. But ultimately, I do think that this may be a little bit too far for our civil forfeiture laws, at least on the evidence that we've seen um, in the application that's been filed so far. Yeah, I mean, we don't know everything. I mean, this uh, this is an interesting application that's been filed in civil court, and it points out that th- this guy's brother had been investigated for drug trafficking. And I don't know, I guess they're trying to make some link there. That this is part of the uh, there, that the the condo was bought with laundered money or something, but I mean, isn't wouldn't that normally be a, a criminal charge? Like if you think someone's laundering money, you could charge them under the criminal code. Could you, you not? Could charge, you could charge them under the criminal code, although yeah. money laundering charges are extremely difficult to prove and extremely difficult for the police to gather all the evidence, as we've been hearing uh, in the uh, money laundering inquiry. Okay, I mean, as a lawyer, when you take a look at the civil forfeiture system, do you think it's inherently flawed? Like, you know, because if you go to a civil court, the rules of evidence are different, right? It is. There is a significant flaw there in that you can essentially find somebody guilty in a civil system of a crime and then take away their belongings on a lower standard of evidence where you only prove it on a balance of probabilities. But it does serve a purpose in protecting the public because it does function to take away instruments of unlawful activity from people who are continuously committing crimes. I think there's a limited role that it could play in our society, but right now it's being used far too broadly and far too often. Okay, 604-280-9898 is the number to call. 604-280-9898, star 9898 on your cell. Let's squeeze a call in here. Don in Vancouver, hi. Hi. Um, I have to disagree with both your callers there, or the, both your guests. Um, I'm just thinking, if, if I was a victim of a criminal event and something had happened and my family was hurt, uh, there would be a criminal proceedings that would follow, and then thereafter, I would have the ability to go after them civilly for some of the damages. Now, in this case, I think that the government is has full right to go after them civilly because they, I mean, the cost of doing business, of policing all that, after he's been told that he's not supposed to be doing it. Now, here's the other thing. If we, could you imagine if everybody with criminal activity started flushing money into the Vancouver market? Could you imagine what Vancouver would look like? Yes, unaffordable. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I take your point. Kyla, what do you think of that? Um, I mean, I think that sort of uh, it, it encapsulates the way that the U.S. justice system is structured, where it's the people versus an individual who's charged with a crime. And so the state is sort of set up as being the victim of the crime in these types of cases. In Canada, we don't view the state when there are sort of these so-called victimless crimes, and I'm doing air quotes right now. Um, we don't view the state or our nation as the victim of the crime and set it up that way. 
Yeah, this uh, Office of Civil Forfeiture, it's been criticized before for being uh, going too far, especially from a, like a civil libertarian argument. Uh, it's been it's been criticized, and we heard it again today from the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. They don't like this civil forfeiture system. You mentioned that you think it's being used too often. Um, are these typically slam-dunk cases? Like, when this office goes after people and tries to seize assets, are they usually successful? Uh, they are not easily slam-dunk cases. And thankfully, the law has been developing to allow people to argue things like that their charter rights were violated by the police and have that uh, evidence excluded even from civil forfeiture proceedings. Um, So some of the fairness principles that we have in our criminal justice system are starting to spill over into civil forfeiture applications. Okay, we're going to follow this one closely and see how it turns out. Kyla, thanks for coming on with your thoughts on it today. Thanks for having me. Oh, let's talk about those anti-old growth logging protests on Vancouver Island now at Ferry Creek. Uh, There have been more than a thousand arrests there. We have seen clashes between loggers, protesters, police. It has just been crazy out there. Huge development in this dispute yesterday. A B.C. Supreme Court judge refused to extend the injunction against the protesters that had required them to stop blogging, blocking those logging roads. That injunction is now expired. And there were videos posted yesterday of the RCMP packing up and moving out of there. The protesters say they will continue to disrupt logging operations in that area. Have a listen to this now. Now, this was posted by the anti-old growth logging protesters in the area Yesterday on Facebook, there there was a party broke out there on the logging roads when the word came down about this court judgment ending this injunction. Have a listen to this. This is an exciting historic day, everyone. Four o'clock, the injunction ended today. RCMP are packing up. They are just beyond these gates. They are taking their tarps. They are taking their... They are taking out all of their vehicles and they are leaving and we are here celebrating. Yes, RCMP, the world is watching you and guess what? The injunction is over. Okay. Okay, there's a huge party. There's people dancing on the logging roads there declaring victory in this fight against old growth logging at Ferry Creek. Uh, the RCMP, I, got, I just got a statement from the RCMP saying they're reviewing the judgment, but there there certainly were videos of them packing up and moving out yesterday. Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Jeff Bromley. Jeff is the chair of the Wood Council at the United Steelworkers Union. They represent a lot of those loggers there. Jeff, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me on, Mike's a pleasure. Okay, what do you think of this judgment? Was this a surprise to you that this judge, I mean, this was the same judge, I believe, who granted the injunction in the first place, and now he's turned around and said he won't extend it. What do you think of that? I'll be honest with you, I am, I am a little surprised. I thought that the more prudent thing would be to extend the injunction and try to keep the peace in terms of what the protesters are up to over there in Ferry Creek and in terms of interrupting logging operations. And, I mean, I, I did read through the decision yesterday, and Justice Thompson does it with his reasons. And, and you know, I don't know if I, I want to comment on, on what he comments in terms of the RCMP tactics or the issues. Because I, I didn't see that. So at any rate, it's unfortunate because I think that although a thousand arrests, is many of them for the second or third time that I'm told, 
is uh, certainly not ideal, but I think it was doing uh, its job of keeping the, ultimately keeping the peace. And I'm extremely concerned of what may happen now if if those protesters get really entangled with logging operations. Yeah. Okay. The 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 ruling that came down, as you mentioned, the judge did have some criticism of police conduct there on the protest line, and there have been videos of police officers pepper spraying protesters and that kind of thing. Um, and he did, he did call out the RCMP in the, in this judgment yesterday. That's, that's undeniable for sure. But I know that for the people who are working in the woods there on a daily basis and are just doing their job, I know that they were worried about some of the tactics that were being used against them. Right. Can, can we, can you talk a little bit about that? Like some of the evidence of tree spiking and, and sort of damage and booby traps and that kind of stuff. Uh, and there's no question. Our jobs over there for our harvesters and loggers on the on Vancouver Island, we represent uh, almost 3,500 members plus on the Vancouver Species Coast. And, and these jobs are these are of the most dangerous jobs in the world, never mind having protesters and, and folks uh, coming into these, da- these areas while they're working. And now these tactics that we're seeing in terms of in terms of heli logging operations, the helipads that are built for the helicopters to land safely are being uh, are being damaged and vandalized. We're seeing flood culverts. So in culverts are obviously they disperse the water from the roads, and uh, if those floods, those culverts are plugged, then obviously the water cannot melt. It, it will pool and, and wash out roads and, and cause a danger for truck drivers. And then, as you mentioned, the tree spiking, uh, and and now it's not obviously tree spiking when it comes to running a saw and, and a power saw, and and in coming in contact with metal spikes will cause extreme amount of damage and puts our members in in extreme in extreme danger. Those ones that aren't are caught, they could come into the mills and go through saw boxes and 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 cause extreme damage to saw factory boxes and workers that are in the mill, and more concentrated amount of workers inside the mills. So, these tactics, quite frankly. They're terroristic tactics. I mean, I don't, obviously, we don't agree with them. I don't begrudge any protesters that, are, that want to express their, 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 their opinion and, and do so legally and do so as we do in this country. But uh, what they're doing now, they're, it's bordering on terrorism. Okay. Okay. Well, let me ask you about the tree spiking. And people may be familiar with this. And we've heard reports of this over the years in British Columbia. And this is where you'd uh, drive big spikes, big long spikes into a tree in order to foul a chainsaw that's trying to cut the tree down. And as you mentioned, I mean, obviously extremely dangerous uh, tactic. Do we know, like, is there any evidence that that was actually being done in Ferry Creek? At this point, from what I, my understanding is just, it's just a threat. Uh, um, I read wasn't there a sign that, wasn't there a sign yeah. posted there that was entered as evidence in court like someone put up a sign warning loggers that the trees had been spiked correct and that's what yeah. I was referring to I don't know if there's been an actual evidence of a we found a tree that spiked as of yet since that sign was posted recently um, but there's no question that's right that there's been 142 spikes and that's a pretty peculiar number a pretty particular number and uh, we have to take it extremely seriously, and we can only assume that those those, those trees in that area have been spiked. And, and the, the other part of it, metal spikes are one thing, and they're extremely dangerous. Um, but we can we do have technology that can detect it, uh, whether it be hand wands or, or through metal detectors in the mills and whatnot. But they're also using ceramic spikes, which do not get uh, detected by uh, metal detectors and can do cause just well, as is much there, is damage. There, is there evidence of that that that's been done, or is that just another no. threat? 
just another threat. So far, it's a threat, oh, but okay. they're they're making these. What, they're not idle threats. What about the? You mentioned damage to some helicopter landing pads, like. So for the logging companies, they use helicopters there to bring in equipment or something? Or what do they use the helicopters for? Correct. So it's more selective logging in those areas yeah. um, and on very high slopes. And, and so those helicopter loggings need to land, uh, obviously, near the uh, areas where they're, they're uh, placing the, uh, the harvesting the logs. And so a lot of times they have to build the, the pads uh, yeah. And so that it's safe to land because it's not uh, it's not exactly uh, steady terrain, and so these these pads are, have been ripped up and damaged and spiked themselves, and and then so and then further to that uh, on the logging roads where we were seeing uh, evidence of long spikes uh, nails being put on the logging roads, which would uh, obviously blow the tires of logging trucks as they traverse those roads, which would be devastating. Okay, so Jeff, where does this go from here now? Now, you did have a, a court injunction in place that required the protesters to move aside, and we saw daily police enforcement of that injunction. We've seen a lot of arrests, a lot of controversy. Now the injunction has expired. The judges refused to renew it. The protesters are declaring victory. They're saying they're not going home, though. They're saying they're, they're going to continue to to protest there and, I guess, try to disrupt logging operations. And there was some evidence yesterday the cops are moving out. What are your concerns now going forward? Well, I'm concerned. It's, unfortunately, so the injunction was based on a civil uh, injunction based on Teal Jones's right to operate their business legally. And so now that that's expired, the actions that are threatened here that we've been talking about, that becomes more of a criminal nature. And so it's, I hope that the RCMP aren't going too far, that we can, they can at least monitor these, these eco-terrorists, and uh, my, my words, in terms of what possible damage they could do to not only, um, not only the roads, but endangering the safety and the lives of our members. Again, like I said off the top, this is the, one of the most dangerous professions in the world. And these, these, these eco-terrorists are just making it even worse. And I'm hoping that the RCMP will stick around. I mean, it's not like, it's not like downtown Vancouver where, where, where the, the police patrol the streets to keep, to keep people safe. They don't patrol the woods in a similar fashion in nature. And uh, we all need them out there because and then, cause what happens if they're not there? I'm, I'm extremely worried about what may happen. I don't want my members to take things into their own hands, but these folks are just getting up to go to work. Uh, and you, you get into a way of, of somebody trying to put food on their table for their families and, and things could get, especially if you're endangering their lives, it can get really ugly. Okay, I certainly hope that does not happen. Jeff, thank you for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. We continue talking about the dispute at Ferry Creek and the dramatic development there yesterday where the judge on the case has now refused to extend that injunction. Uh, protesters celebrating in the area. They say the police are packing up and leaving the area. You just heard my conversation there with Jeff Bromley's with the Steelworkers Union. They represents the loggers there in the area. Let's get the other side of it now. Sapora Berman is an environmental activist and writer. She supports the protesters in the area, and I'm pleased to welcome her back. Sapora, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me. What, what is your reaction to the judge's decision yesterday not to extend that injunction? You must be you must be very happy about it. Well, I, you know, I, I, I do think that it is, um, you know, it's it's excellent to see uh, a judge reinforcing a lot of what we've heard uh, from citizens on the ground that the RCMP um, have exerted undue violence, um, that and, and pressure 
Um, there's been a lot of strange activity, quite frankly. Um, and, you know, with the RCMP officers without their badges, some of them even wearing some of that, that thin blue line thing that um, the RCMP commissioner said shouldn't be worn, you know. And, and, and uh, you know, we've been hearing about these concerns about the RCMP for months. And what we heard in Justice Thompson's ruling is that their conduct was a key factor in his decision, yeah. um, that there have been infringements of civil liberties. And I think that this is an important step uh, to addressing that, but also to addressing the history of corporations using civil injunctions um, you know, to protect them, essentially forcing the, the battle, citizens' battle over policies and resource development to be a battle with the courts instead of with the corporations themselves or with the government that is making policy decisions. Okay, I think it's been I, a misuse of the courts for a long time. I've spoken to the the RCMP about this issue around officers at the line there covering up their badges, and they say the reason they did that was because some of the protesters were harassing them in the community, were following them around, or were, were harassing them and finding out their names and, and, and trying to bother them. And targeting them and that's why they were covering up their badges what do you say to that um i the only harassment that i witnessed in my time at ferry creek were rcmp officers who were being unduly um uh, aggressive um and um infringing on citizens civil rights on public land lots of people have been going to ferry creek just to support or even media um to witness and the rcmp has been constraining people's activities searching people without cause i mean all of the complaints many of them were just were were shown to be justified yesterday in this ruling and, and I haven't heard of harassment of individual officers. I certainly didn't see that. I saw a lot of people being super respectful. I mean, when we talk about who these land defenders or protesters are, we're talking about teachers and engineers and construction workers and a lot of scientists. You know, this is and, – and so I, I, I don't think that that's um, – I just, really I just a way that an RCMP officer should be dealing with that kind of thing. If there right. is personal harassment, I think that's wrong. But I just the spoke fact to is, if you're a police officer, you have to wear your badge. You have to yeah. conduct yourself um, in a different way. I just spoke to Jeff Bromley, Sapora before the break. He's with the United Steelworkers Union, and he says that that his people have been threatened out there. He said that there have been threats of spiking trees, driving spikes, metal spikes into trees to foul chainsaws. He says that a hel helicopter landing pads have been damaged there to frustrate loggers. They've plugged up culverts to try and wash out logging roads. Is, is that is any of that stuff true, or what do you say to that? I don't know. I haven't seen a press release saying there was tree spiking. And, you know, there is a, in the past, you know, when we saw evidence of this, say, Earth First in the 90s, the whole yeah. point of it was to keep people from logging in that area. So they would, if there was tree spiking that happened, they would put out a press release and a map and say this area, this area is spiked, and that creates enormous problems for, obviously, for logging companies to not go into that area. But I haven't heard of that, so it would be, you know, pretty crazy to just go in and spike trees and not actually tell people where they were. That's well, the whole said, well, point he, of he's, doing it. He says they 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 did receive a warning. He said someone posted a sign in the area and said basically a warning: these trees have been spiked. 
you know, I, I, I guess yeah. it's possible. I certainly, neither I nor the organization that I work with, Stand But Earth, condones anything that will put people in the, in, in the way of physical harm. But I think yeah. the onus for what's happening and the explosion um, and, uh, of what's happening in Fair Creek, and in fact, I think across this province on Old Growth, you know, the, the responsibility has to come back to the B.C. government. None of this would be happening if they, had, if they were making good on their promise to protect what's left of this province's old growth and to implement okay. the recommendations of the panel. Support. we just have one minute left here. What happens now? Like, it, there was video yesterday of the police packing up and moving out. Like, the protesters are not moving out, though, right? They will remain there. Is that correct? As far as I know, there's a lot of people who are saying that they're, they are going to stay to try and protect those old growth forests until um, until we know um, that more permanent protection has been put into place. And the fact is what happens now is, is essentially up to the B.C. government because the, the police can still go in and arrest, obviously, with a criminal charge, even without an injunction. But right. whether or not those criminal charges go forward, that's in the hands of the B.C. government now. Okay. Support, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about the dramatic underground mine rescue in Ontario. Now 39 miners trapped underground in Sudbury. They have all been rescued. I am happy to report to you, which is awesome. Let's check in with Ted Hanley now. Ted is the vice president of Ontario Mine Rescue, and we've reached him in Sudbury. Hi, Ted. Hello. Thanks for having us. Hey, Ted, thanks a lot for coming on. Congratulations to you and your team uh, rescuing these 39 miners. It's, it's fantastic to talk about a good news story like this. Uh, let, let's talk about how these miners became trapped in the first place there. When, when, did, this all, when did this go wrong? What happened? So on, on Sunday, the mine operator uh, valet uh, experienced uh, an incident in their main vertical shaft going into the mine that, that transfers people and equipment. So while they were moving equipment, um, they had some equipment detached from a, from a safety device and damaged that, that opening. So uh, during this process, no people are involved for safety purposes, so there were no injuries. But that damage to their main entryway into the mine meant that they were unable to bring the workers already underground back to surface. Now, in the province of Ontario... Uh, it's a regulatory requirement that the mine have a, a secondary means of egress to get out of that mine. So the process then became uh, to create an evacuation plan to bring the workers out to secondary egress. The only, the only problem in this situation, the secondary egress was uh, you know, nearly a kilometer of vertical ladder ways that uh, the workers would have to traverse, um, uh, which put them at risk of uh, of uh, injuring themselves, and in some cases, some workers were were physically incapable of of completing that process under their own power. So they uh, activated the Ontario Mine Rescue Program to provide equipment and mine rescue responders to be able to uh, assist with the evacuation of those workers. Okay, so these guys had to climb like a kilometer of ladders to get to the surface effectively and, and some of them some of them had trouble doing that is that is that what i'm hearing yeah so it was about yeah. three quarters of a kilometer uh vertical distance and they there was no choice but to do that through ladderways which for you know a percentage of their healthy underground miners was uh, was not going to physically be a challenge 
be extremely arduous to, to be doing that over hours and hours of just continual climbing, but um, would be would be possible. Now, the situation was such that we were unsure whether everyone would be physically capable of doing it and whether during that process um, there were any risks to individuals who might fall or injure themselves. Yeah. Yeah. So the mine rescue program um, brought high-angle rope rescue equipment and installed rope rescue systems from the top to the bottom of the mine so that there was uh, a safety backup essentially for those workers able to exit under their own power. And then there was uh, a rope hauling system to physically lift the workers out from the bottom of the mine who required that assistance, which is why this became such a long duration evacuation because um, for, you know, 30 hours straight, the mine rescue responders were, uh, manually lifting individuals out of the mine. Wow. Wow, that's incredible. That's a long time to be underground. And are all the miners safely to the surface now? That's correct. So as yeah. of 4.45 this morning, the last mine worker uh, exited the mine uh, to his family and uh, the mine rescue responders shortly thereafter. Uh, so the, the, the situation... Evacuating the workers is complete, but Valet has a, a much larger process to uh, rehabilitate the mine and put it back in working order now. Wow, okay, what's that like for these guys who have been trapped under underground for that long to finally get to the surface? I mean, man, that must, be a, that must have been a scene of uh, joy and elation, I imagine. Absolutely. So for some of these individuals, you know, they were climbing for up to six hours. They were exhausted after having worked a mining shift. They, you know, had limited nutrition and, and whatnot. For other individuals, as I mentioned, it was a 30-hour process of, of continual uh, physical work for them. Um, you know, they had communications with their families from underground to assure them that, that everything was okay and that this was just a slow process. But um, as, you know, we moved from Sunday to Monday to Tuesday and now to Wednesday, um, this is, a, you know, it starts to, to wear on those mine workers who, who are comfortable working in that underground environment. But um, it certainly is in anxiety-inducing uh, the concept of, of not being able to leave until uh, this work is complete. Did they, did they have food and water down there? Yeah, so part of the, the mine rescue process was that uh, our mine rescue officers and the volunteer responders who work for Valet had to carry down thousands of pounds of mine rescue equipment and supplies such as uh, you know food and medicine on their backs down these ladderways to, to the bottom where the mine workers were so that they could uh, supply them with things like food and medicine and then, and then set up all this, this high-angle rope rescue equipment. Okay, that's amazing. Ted, for a guy like you who works as the, uh, in the mine rescue business, I mean, to get a call that there's been an accident, there are miners trapped, I guess is the worst news that you'd want to get. Uh, but then, man, what a payoff to, to rescue all 39 trapped miners. What, is this, what has it been like for you and, and your team to, to experience this the last few days? Yeah, I think the, the important thing to remember here is that um, when we're not making front-page news across Canada, these mine workers and these mine rescue responders and our mine rescue officers, they're training throughout the year and, and setting up emergency response processes for the mining sector so that should any emergency occur, we have a process in place. We don't have to think twice. We just enact our, our people, policies, procedures, and we can begin the process safely. 
We don't have to learn something new or, or uh, resource ourselves. That's already established. So it's a validation of that process. And, and there are many excellent mine rescue programs across Canada that have a similar process so that the mine workers going underground every day have an assurance that somebody is coming to get them should something go wrong. And it's no different in this case. Okay, I'm certainly glad to hear that, and what a great outcome that you've achieved there. I imagine there will be an investigation now of what went wrong? Absolutely. So our, yeah. our, our uh, stake in this was purely related to the evacuation of the workers and ensuring their health and safety, and now uh, Valet, the mine operator, in conjunction with um, you know our provincial Ministry of Labour, Training and Skills Development, will assess what went wrong that caused this incident and what they can do in the future to, to put the mine back in working order. Ted, congratulations. Great job in rescuing all of those miners in Sudbury. and Job well done. Thanks for coming on today to talk about it. Thanks for having us.